0: The, the beautiful part about our training system that comes from the way that Coach V has implemented it is there's a lot of hard workouts in a short period of time that you get so many data points. So by the time you get to the race, like you know the fitness that the athlete's in. You don't really have any indicator workouts. It's just the cumulative body of the work that the athletes put in that it shouldn't be a surprise when they go out and they run what, what they're supposed to. He ended up not running great at the Olympic Trials. I think for him at the time that was the biggest stage he had been on. I think Ben Drew was lining up next to him, and he shook Ben Ben's hand on the starting line. It was like, "Good luck out there, man. I'm a big fan." Like, he's <laughs> he's lining up with some of his heroes at this point. Um, but yep. he was also lined up next to Galen Rupp on the starting line. And so when Galen was being interviewed by NBC, uh, Noah got a lot of FaceTime. And his appearance is so <laughs> unique, like that's Noah. He hasn't cut his hair since high school. Um, and the mustache <laughs> and the the aviator sunglasses were just him, you know? So, he. so many people started like, like he, he went viral on social media. Yep. Most of the athletes on our team are friends with most of the athletes on all the other teams. So on non-workout yep. days, usually they're all meeting up with who they consider their buddies to go for runs. And that might that might include like most of the athletes on our team running with other athletes. It might be like, like Noah's friends with most of the Tinman guys. So like on recovery days, yep. he might go run with a few of the Tinman guys. Um, Willie, is, same thing. Willie's friends with a lot of the Tinman guys. Um... Maggie on our team is friends with some, some of the women on Bosherd, as is, as is my wife, Aaliyah. So they might do some recovery runs together. Um, for workouts specifically though, like we have our practice, they have their practice.
1: You just heard from Dr. Richard Hansen, head coach of Boulder, Colorado's Roots Running Project. A few days ago, I had a great chat where we chatted about how the Roots Running Group formed how they are going now his coaching and training methodology his learnings from experienced coach joe v hill sponsorship chat and how he tries to avoid injury and maximize performance with his athletes richard is also a prominent sports chiropractor who specializes in treating distance runners he certainly knows his stuff i absolutely loved everything about this chat i'm sure so many of you will too so be sure to tune in live, learn, grow, and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Before we get into the interview, I've just got a quick announcement. I've just established an online exercise community for runners. For just $5 per week, you get three 20-minute exercise routines, one focusing on mobility and stretching, the other focusing on activation core and Pilates, and the last one focusing on heavy strength exercises. These exercise routines will be updated weekly So if you're interested, go to run-therapy.teachable.com or follow the links on my Run Culture Facebook and Instagram pages. The first 30 people to sign up receive a free Run Culture singlet retailing at $80 in the mail. As a member, you'll also have access to the online Facebook community associated with the group. As part of this, this group is designed to keep everyone honest and and keep everyone exercising and, and doing the routine but it's also to make sure that the exercises cater for the individual now i must add signing up is not indefinite and if you feel the classes are not for you for any reason you can cancel at any time so strength training has been shown to help running performance i believe a conditioned and balanced runner is a more resilient runner to injury so yeah, I've wanted to do something like this for a long time. If you're interested, just um, sign up. All right. I hope to see you there and let's get on to this week's interview.
0: Yeah, I pre- uh, like obviously always appreciative to to chat running with anybody, but um, always exciting, especially when when different cultures might have different ways of training and it's, it's always great to connect. We had a a friend from australia, Julian spence that had had jumped in with our group a little bit last summer, and it was interesting to hear how his his training was down in Australia compared to how we do things and then seeing how he was able to run so well this past year at at london and berlin was was pretty exciting for us so always great to obviously connect with with different people from different groups but especially when you cross continents and countries it's it's pretty exciting
1: oh is that um do you, do you know Julian, um, is it through um, cause, um your wife that's Allie Ally Gray, isn't it? And um Yeah. So they yeah. went to the same college, wasn't it? Yeah. State?
0: Yeah, exactly. They were they were college teammates for a season when Julian was over there training and uh yeah, he he was coming in for a training camp before Berlin, I believe it was twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, and asked if he could train with us over summer and on his build up into Berlin and um, it was my first time meeting him, but Aaliyah had known him pretty well beforehand. I think his nickname that they had called him in college was Moose. So that's yeah, what, I, Yeah, so that's what, what she would call him. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, because he, he, um, he's doing really well with a podcast, Inside Running, um, with um, Brady Trailful and um, Bradley Croker. Yeah, um, that's I, what he was saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, watching his progression has been awesome, like going from, Yeah, like a 2.25 marathoner to 2.14.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, like, I think, wasn't he at Worlds in uh, 2019
1: too? Yeah, he went to, um, yeah, Doha. Um, Yeah, ran for Australia. So, yeah, it was pretty awesome to see. And that was all documented on the podcast. So, um, yeah, that was, yeah, really cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Aliyah was kind of telling me when he first came out, like, I think his goal at London that year was to run 216, and I think he ended up running 215, I want to say. And then, it, yeah. and then it was like at Berlin to drop down as much as he did. Like, it's, it's been fun to watch.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I just wanted to uh, start off by introducing you to the listeners. Um, so, yeah, I um, wanted to start off that you're the head coach at Roots Running in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and have you been there since 2009?
0: Or... Yeah. So I've been in Boulder since 2009 and then we unofficially started the group around 2015, but then officially in 2016. So,
1: yep. Yep. And you're a former collegiate distance runner trainer for UC San Diego. Um, mm-hmm. you currently own and operate a private sports medicine practice called high altitudes spine and sport. Yep. Um, correct. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you're yeah, a chiropractor um, with a physical therapist mindset um, and uh, you've got a certificate in strength and conditioning and an undergraduate bachelor certificate in psychology.
0: Yep, um, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I um, probably just wanted to start with um. How. how did your sort of progression into – um, running and um, and your field of work start. Uh,
0: so back in high school, I was. I mean, I played all sports growing up. But I, I didn't really specialize in anything until later on in high school. Um, but I was focused primarily on on basketball. And um, my freshman year of high school, my mom signed me up for cross country, and I was thinking that it would get me in shape for basketball. She was thinking that it's a sport I might do well at, and ends up she was right and I wasn't very tall in high school I was now I'm six foot two but at the time I was I was five foot oh so basketball wasn't necessarily something that that played towards my strengths and um I ended up being pretty decent at at running that I decided to focus on that when I hit my junior year of high school and ended up being good enough that uh UC San Diego recruited me to come and run for them um i wasn't i I don't want to say like I had the the most successful collegiate career because I was so wet behind the ears of what the sport entailed like off seasons I never trained I was pretty low mileage i was I was around thirty miles a week in high school, and I think my max in college was around fifty five um, but i was i had I had some decent leg speed just naturally um that I was able once I got a little bit more endurance under my belt, I was able to at least be pretty competitive on our team. Um, But going into chiropractic school is really where I started applying more of the science of, of running. I really, I enjoyed my time at UC San Diego, even though I didn't necessarily have the most successful athletic career, It, it made me love the sport a lot more. And so when I was in chiropractic school, every time we'd learn, aspects of anatomy or physiology or, or biomechanics, I, I would always apply it towards endurance athletics and distance running in particular. And so that's what brought me out to Boulder, wanting to work with endurance athletes. And so when I, when I finished up graduate school, I I decided to, to head up here to altitude and open up my own clinic with the thoughts of, of working with, with endurance athletes. Um, Getting into coaching, I kind of fell into it. Um, I, I my first year out in Boulder, I was starting up private practice from scratch. I didn't know anybody. I had no family in the area and decided uh, to reach out to a bunch of the different high schools to be an athletic trainer because when I was in graduate school, I, I worked as part of my rotations as an athletic trainer for a high school football team. Um, And so thinking, okay, well, maybe it it helps me network with some of the schools and with some of the parents of the schools. And I ended up being the athletic trainer for one of the high school hockey teams um, and did that for about a year and a half. And they needed help as a middle school high school track coach. And they knew I had run collegiately. And so they asked me if I would help kind of guide the middle schoolers. Um, so did that for the, the spring track season and that summer they asked if I would be willing to, to move up to the high school because the high school coach had recently been dismissed and they needed somebody to replace him. Um, so I started coaching, coaching the high school cross country and track team and, um, really enjoyed it. Like I have always said that the adolescent, the middle school and high school age, is the biggest developmental window that you can hit with an athlete. So you can really build some of the fundamentals of athleticism and strength within an athlete at that point. And you can also see great gains in performance from seeing an athlete develop from their freshman year up to their senior year. Um, So I really enjoyed coaching, coaching that age demographic. But my wife, Aaliyah, now my wife at the time we were, we were, just dating she had moved to boulder to to pursue post-collegiate distance running and uh the group she originally had moved out to to join wasn't necessarily the most um professional format organization that she was looking for and so decided to make a coaching change and um i have a connection with the olympic training center that we got put in contact with coach v hill and he was willing to take her on as an athlete, which kind of forced me to make a decision of continuing to coach at the high school or helping her with her training. Um, so I decided to step down at, at the high school, start implementing her training. Because Coach Vigil, he's, he's now 90, but he, yep. he lives remote, like he's not in Boulder. So having somebody there to help implement her, her training and give him feedback was something she needed. Um, so it allowed me a little bit more flexibility with my practice and she ended up running pretty fast that we started getting contacted by more athletes and decided to, to make it an official group from there. So I never, I never moved to Boulder with the intent of coaching per se, but it's ended up being something I've, I've become obviously passionate about and, and something I enjoy doing and the athletes that we have are, are all now that it's it's made it fun to see them compete at now the international level, as opposed to when you're working with high schoolers, the state meet is the culminating point. And now the Olympic trials and trying to make somebody on a national team is, is that culminating event. So it's the, the perspectives have shifted, but it's all, it's all fun. And having the practice to kind of tie in with it um, gives me, I I think a different perspective um, to be able to, assess an athlete's training and pull the reins back in order to, to keep them a little bit healthier and hopefully help that development over the course of their career. So
1: Nice. And, and so you, you came up with the name Roots Running um, for the post-collegiate team that um, you started mm-hmm. um, with Aaliyah. Um, and, and then now, you know, you've got such a good squad and um, you, you had some great performances. Um, recently um uh you know with a few of your squad going to the olympic marathon u.s trials and um uh like how did you come up with the name
0: so one like i i've never been someone to uh, how do i put this um not to knock on anybody that calls their group after themselves, but I've never been somebody yeah. that's, that's really like wanted to be me at the center of that. Like I don't really market myself as, as the coach of the group or post a ton about myself on social media. Um, it's just not within my personality. So trying to find a group, uh, a name for the group, they kind of exemplified what we were trying to demonstrate which is building overall athleticism in an effort to to maintain long-term development and keep an athlete healthier over time uh, was something that we were kind of searching for. And so the idea of, of roots as the building the athlete from the ground up, establishing good fundamental base of athleticism. It gives the athlete the, the tools that they need in order to maintain the volumes and intensity of the types of training that they're doing Um, and things that hopefully we can, we can continue to build upon cycle after cycle and season after season. Um, so that somebody like I'll use Noah, who's one of our longest guy athletes on the team as an example, when he joined us, he wasn't, he wasn't very fast, but he had a a good mental makeup that he, he wanted to be pretty competitive internationally. And so trying to Incorporate things that he really wasn't experienced with proper strength work, uh, nutritional uh, structure, um, keeping him in a regimented training system, um, monitoring some of the ancillary work and recovery modalities that he hadn't necessarily incorporated Um, all of that combined hopefully built more of a complete program around him that allowed him to make some of the big jumps he did in such a short time with us initially outside of what we would have anticipated, but still being able to to make big gains to make himself more competitive on first the national level and then hopefully on the international level. So that's the thing that we've kind of enjoyed with most of our athletes is they all have decent talent level behind them, but none of them were highly accoladed coming out of college. But they've been able to develop to be really competitive, at least on the national level, and then have a couple athletes that will be on the world's team in, in Poland in, in October for the half marathon championship. So it's been fun watching the transition, but roots kind of stemmed from that of long-term development and, and seeing those athletes progress over time.
1: Nice. And Ken, you go over, because I was listening to the Run Faster podcast that you did with uh, Jay Thompson. Oh, yeah. It was a long time ago, like 2015, yeah, yeah. 16. but it was really cool listening to um, your detailing Noah Droddy's. Um, and for those listeners that um, don't know Noah, but he, he, you'll recognize him. He's got the long hair and often runs with a hat yeah. and, and sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he, he's got such a cool getup um but yeah like you detailed like when he first started with the group he was like a 68 minute half marathoner yep. and um yeah do you want detailing detail in um yeah his breakthrough over 10k like when he first started with you and yeah college?
0: so noah yeah. coming out of college i think he was a three time all american for a division three school DePa in indiana um but his times weren't very impressive his his 10K time was 29.47 and his 5K time was 14.37, I believe. Um, and then, like you said, his half marathon was 68 minutes, which he had set um, the previous spring at Eugene half marathon. And when he had contacted us, um, I guess like he had been out of college for a couple of years, but he had run for a local team in Indiana, um, Kind of training on and off with the team, mostly doing a lot of his own training he had He had gotten a hamstring injury and so decided to give up running for a few months and hike the john Muir trail um, oh, yeah. and so didn't run during that time and Then, when he came off the John Muir trail, um, he decided to get back into running and that sixty eight minute half marathon at eugene was was his first his first race back um, so he had contacted us that summer this was summer of 2015, and he was going to do the Indy Monumental half in November. Um, We had talked about him moving out right after that race, and he ended up running, I think it was 66.30 at Indy Monumental that that same fall. Um, Well, eight weeks later after moving out to Boulder, he dropped down to 64.17, and then that (laughs) spring – um, his first 5k was a 14 flat. Then he ran 1348, um, two weeks later. Uh, then he went Jeez. to, uh, Portland track festival, which was another six weeks after that. And he ran, uh, 2822, which qualified him for the Olympic trials, 28. 15 was the automatic standard, but they take 24 total athletes. And I think he was 22nd on the list. Um, he ended up not running great at the Olympic trials. I think for him at the time, that was the biggest stage he had been on. I think Ben drew was lining up next to him and he shook Ben Ben's hand on the starting line. It was like, good luck out there, man. I'm a big fan. Like he's, (laughs) he's lining up with some of his heroes at this point. Um, but yep. he was also lined up next to Galen Rupp on the starting line, and so when Galen was being interviewed by NBC, uh, Noah got a lot of FaceTime, and his appearance <laughs> is so unique. Like that's Noah; he hasn't cut his hair since high school, um, and the mustache <laughs> and the the aviator sunglasses were just him, you know. So he, so many people started like like he he went viral on social media between like memes to comparing him to a Leonard Skinner tribute band musician, which is which it's funny (laughs) for us because Noah is a musician. Like he was in a band growing up and um so it it was kinda it was funny because Noah is like the personality that you see of Noah in in the media is exactly his personality in real life where he he qualifies for the Olympic trials the year before he had bought tickets for him and his dad to be spectators at the Olympic trials. Now he got to give <laughs> his extra ticket to his mom to come and watch him race. And he didn't want to pay for a hotel room out there. Cause he is pretty thrifty. And so I, I drove a cot out to Eugene and he slept in mine and Aaliyah's hotel room on the cot. And the night before the Olympic trials, like, he wasn't super active on social media at that time. Now he's much more active, but at the time, we had kind of um, we had encouraged him to be more active on on Twitter initially because we were like, "Look, like if you start running fast, like and you're in discussions to have a contract, you need to give people and sponsors something to look at." So just good to have at least some sort of presence. And at the time, I think he had like 250 followers and like three people had stopped following him the day before the trials. And he's like complaining in the hotel room. Oh man, I'm purging followers <laughs> left and right. And then he has a really bad race the next night at the trials. And he had turned his phone off and he was like sulking overnight. He stayed with his parents at their hotel room. Cause he didn't want to Im- negatively impact Aliyah's race the next day. And uh, turns on his phone in the morning and his like phone is blowing up. Like he had no idea that social media was, would- with his likeness and like his following (laughs) is now like i think it was like 2700 the next morning he's like what the hell and like runner's world ended up doing (laughs) the, the like feature article on him that it was just like such an overnight whirlwind for him media wise but he had really like That spring, the amount, the steps he had taken, going from a fourteen thirty seven guy down to thirteen forty eight and twenty nine forty seven down to twenty eight twenty two, were such big steps. Like we we could see it in training. It wasn't like going into the ten k where he ran that twenty eight twenty two. I told him twenty eight twenty was the goal, and we had he had he had come up with the thing Richie to Richie after that race, meaning. I was on the infield of that track and I was calling out his individual 400. So it was like 66 high 67 two. like it was, I would call yep. out those tents and him and Scott Smith from NAZ elite. It, it ended up, they had separated from the chase group. There was a guy from Uganda that had just taken off and was running 28 flat pace on his own, but it was him and Scott Smith alternating leads where it was Richie, Richie, like, Get each 400. Um, he knew what he had to do. That it was still a shock yeah. to him when he crossed the line, but it was like he knew he was prepared to run that. But that that race in particular, and qualifying for the Olympic trials, kind of set up his trajectory for the next year. He ended up finishing second at the 10 mile champs. He set a minute PR at Houston in really humid conditions by a minute. He ran sixty-three oh something. Um, and then he followed that Good. up with running 61.48 in the spring at New York. Um, and that was another one where the, the day before I'm, I'm grabbing a cocktail with his agent and his agent's like, all right, <laughs> what, what do you think he can run tomorrow? And I'm like 61.45. And he's like, it kind of <laughs> gives me this look like that's a 90 second PR um, for a guy that's run 63. To, and that 63 was only eight weeks before that 61.48 it was that thing, you yep. know, that the the beautiful part about our training system that comes from the way that Coach V has implemented it is there's a lot of hard workouts in a short period of time that you get so many data points. So by the time you get to the race, like, you know, the fitness that the athletes in, you don't really have any indicator workouts. It's just the cumulative body of the work that the athletes put in that it shouldn't be a surprise when they go out and they run what what they're supposed to um, so at 61:45, like he was with a group through 10k and then he just took off like the, a cool story about that one was he was really hoping to get yeah. get a sponsorship if he ran fast after that race which he ended up getting um, with Saucony but during the race he was running with uh, Chris Derrick and Diego Estrada and the way that that course would go is it started in Central Park in New York, and it kind of rolls with some hills through the first 10K. And then you have this long straightaway going down through Times Square that ends. That old course ended up finishing in the financial district down at Wall Street. And you can get this nice gradual downsloping downhill um, for, for the next 5K after Central Park. And it was also really windy that day, but down that section you had a nice little tailwind. So no, Noah was getting antsy going through central park and Diego Estrada was the one keeping him calm. Like, not yet, not yet. Hold back. Not yet. And finally, when they hit the edge of central park at 10 K in Diego yells at him, like, go get that contract. Like, and Noah just like put his head down and just (laughs) like, he, like he, he was pretty much solo from 10 K on Diego only finished five seconds behind him, but Noah Noah ha- was on a mission that day and ended up having another big breakthrough that that got him that sponsorship deal. So for him at that point it was like this was what 20 2017. So to be a 68 minute guy in the spring of 2015 to a 6148 guy and now a sponsored athlete over the course of 2 years was such a a mind-blowing experience for him that like qualifying for the olympic marathon trials was an ultimate career goal when he made the decision to move to boulder and now he's i think at the time it ranked him like 25th or 26th all-time in the u.s um so it was yeah it's it's stuff like that though that when i talk about like some of the athletes that we have with development it's it's cool seeing those breakthroughs, especially when none of them were really highly accoladed athletes coming out, um, that it just makes it even more fun um, seeing, seeing those types of breakthroughs take place. Not to say that I don't want to coach, yeah. like, really talented people because there's a different breed when you're coaching those, but, like, coaching the development athlete, there's a, there's a sense of achievement, accomplishment, excitement, more so than expectation already being there inherently.
1: Yep. Yeah. Cuz don't it, it, you have a um you have about 461 minute half marathon. Yeah, and three
0: now. of them did it on the same day in January and they were like yeah, oh, they that, were that I think 3 or 4 seconds apart from one another.
1: <laughs> Far out. So your group really has grown um uh you know over the last Yeah, yeah,
0: between between those those four guys um all being 6146 is the fastest and 6150 is the slowest between the four of them. Um <laughs> and then Maggie in her second half marathon that same day ran 70 minutes and 2 seconds or 70 minutes and 6 seconds to qualify for the world half team as well. Wow. Um like, I hate to say that the half marathon is our best event right now, but that looks to be the case until we start proving it more consistently at the marathon. Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, and another one of your athletes, um, mm-hmm. Frank Lara, he, he almost won the 15K. Yeah, he said um, he said if it was 20 day. meters
0: longer, he would have caught him. But he came close. He had the lead <laughs> with 600 meters to go and – the guy got a little bit away from him, but he was closing back on him. So close.
1: Yep. So how many are going to Poland, So we'll ha- we'll um, have two. Uh,
0: we'll have Willie Milam on the men's yep. side and then uh, Maggie Montoya on the women's side.
1: Yep. Yep. And, um, yeah, I suppose I wanted to also go through, like, um, I suppose just your, the, the influence that um, – joe v hills had on your squad um uh you say mm-hmm. he's 90 now um and yeah he, he's been a coach for you know just so many years i, I just finished the book um running oh on, yeah running to the edge yeah. um by matt Fetterman. um and it's sort of detailing bob larson's um uh career in coaching and um sort of mentions joe v hill a fair bit um uh and his influence with Meb Keflazecki and yep, Dina yep. Um Yeah. Uh, what are some of like um, some of the key lessons that you've learned from working with Joe and like ha- how much of, is he a mentor? Or how much does he still, um, I don't know, how much does he, how much influence does he have on um, the program?
0: So he, he has a tremendous influence on me as a mentor. Um, and then with my yep. wife, Aaliyah in particular, he was really the one writing the structure of her workout from 2015 through gosh, through 2018. He still provides her with a framework each month because he likes writing out the calendar. And, um, but has given me a lot of, like, he, he trusts me a lot as a coach and, um, he understands he's not here on site. And so, um, I've, I've, kinda of taking the reins a little bit more over the past two years with her training. Um she went through she went through about of uh she had a chronic sinus infection and then and then had an injury this last year at uh she was racing the Prague half marathon and her uh knee buckled on the cobblestone with five K to go and she ended up tearing her meniscus and had knee surgery last year. Um so since that point he he's pretty much given me the control to we'll, we'll check in with him, but, um, it's, it's really me helping to get her back into training and now structuring the the training, um, in order to try to keep her healthy, considering the injuries that she's had. Um, but outside of, outside of her, um, the rest of the athletes are, are, are me writing the training, but it's still heavily influenced by the philosophy that, that he's had, which, I I joke that his philosophy isn't really like a V-Hill philosophy as much as it's just rooted in science because he was a PhD and two PhDs in physiology and taught physiology at Adams state for 30 some years. And um, I think he won something like 27 national titles when he was at Adams state um, over something like 130 all Americans. And I think in the early 90s, his men's cross-country team was the only NCAA cross-country team to perfectly sweep an NCAA championship. They went one through five in the scoring points. Um, so he's yeah. obviously very, very knowledgeable, and we're, we're lucky to have him in our corner. And what I mean by rooted in science is that all it's it's not necessarily like it's the planning of how he incorporates everything because when you see it on paper you're like that's a lot of stimulus is in a short period of time but the way that the balance of the different biomotor patterns are allocated throughout a microcycle is really i think kind of the key and then from a healthcare side the ability to daily monitor the athlete's program i think helps that that process as well um so When I talk about the biomotor systems, like obviously endurance, power, general strength, um, mobility, and and coordination are kind of fundamental within his program, not from a strength standpoint, but how you format that within running workouts. And then from a strength standpoint, we'll pair a strength routine to kind of match whatever that biostimulus is um, to make sure that the athletes are still gaining an aspect of strength each day. Um, so on paper, this, the training looks intense and I, I've modified it for some of the athletes that are, I don't want to say they're old, but as they, as they get older in their career, um, building in maybe a little bit more recovery than they may have done a couple years ago versus when they first started within the system. But, um, and I've, I've modified our, our marathon approach a little bit more too, um, after talking with, with, uh, some of the, the the good like marathoners from the U.S. back in the '80s about how they approach training. I may have modified that a little bit more than Coach V. Hill would have, but ultimately we've still tried to hold pretty true to to the fundamental principles that that he he taught me and instituted with Aaliyah when she first started working with him. Nice,
1: um, and uh, like with um, uh, Aaliyah, like back in. 2016 um she came 10th at the u.s um marathon trials and i was listening to a preparation um for that um on on jay johnson's yeah run faster mm-hmm. podcast again and it sounded less than ideal it sounded like you're pretty much doing v hills uh training sessions on the alter g for a good eight weeks um uh, and then she still managed to run so well um yeah, do you mind just going through how you use the Ultra G and um and I suppose that was a really good combination of V V Hill's training philosophy there and then also your 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 use of your um sports um yeah background.
0: so um I'm fortunate obviously that we have an Ultra G in the office and it made access to one when when she got hurt relatively easy and me monitoring her training I'm in the room with her um when she's when she's doing the alter g sessions um she it, the olympic trials that year um november she was doing some overspeed training that coach vi had assigned. she was doing downhill 400s and on one of the 400 she stepped in like a little ditch or divot in the road and and rolled her ankle um and at the time she was like oh that kind of hurt but she was still able to finish the workout I was sore after but didn't think much of it um 2 weeks later she did a track 10k uh where she set a big PR going in was 3257 and she ran I believe 3227 on that night um but she could barely put weight on her leg afterwards and so we ordered an x-ray when one- she got back just to make sure there wasn't any definitive fracture line and the x-ray wasn't super clear, but it almost looked like there was like a little bit of a hairline fracture that was present at the spot where she was noting tenderness. Uh the radiologist had called it normal. I talked to him on the phone and he agreed that it looked a little funky. So we ordered a follow-up x ray a week later. Um and it, you could start seeing the fracture line forming. Um Fortunately, it was in the fibula, it wasn't any of the, the primary weight-bearing bones. Um, she couldn't wear a boot because the compression from the boot still irritated it and put ten- uh, and it was pretty tender, just the pressure. But she was able to run on the altergy without any discomfort. So the first two weeks, we kept her primarily on the alter G. We started around 70% body weight. And I was ordering follow-up x-rays every two weeks during that period just to make sure that the bone was callusing and starting to heal. And we were seeing that progression where the callus was forming and there wasn't any disruption of the callus on subsequent imaging. Um, And at that point when she first fractured, we had 10 weeks to go. She had two weeks full on the ulcer. We had eight weeks where I was starting to try and transition her to outside running. Um, In my head, the most instead of trying to like – transition her by okay do a run walk outside or or uh or try some easy running our first run back was 20 miles at at marathon like uh, a marathon effort run but it was 20 miles progressing down the marathon pace because in my head like okay we only have eight weeks if it's hurt and you can't run on it like you're not doing the race anyways but Uh, we might as well push the envelope utilizing the alter G for some of the other stuff, but, um, starting with the long run effort, that's going to be most specific to at least the marathon distance. Um, so started with the 20 miler. She handled that fine. Everything else that next, uh, that week was on the alter G, um, did the, the long run outside the following weekend and then started incorporating like marathon pace stuff during the week that all started going fine. So then I started incorporating the intervals outside. Um, So by the time we got to about a week before the marathon trials, she was running outside maybe five of the seven days with two of the recovery days were on the alter G. Most of all of her workouts at that point were, were outside. Um, And then she ended up performing great at, at the Olympic trials. Like, she did Houston half marathon on the lead up to it. I think she ran seventy two forty 40 something, but that the time that was still a 30, 42nd PR for, her. um, and that was only with, I think she had run outside a, a total of six times in that 10 weeks leading up to that, or the, the, the five weeks leading up to that race when she heard it. Um, but we, we think that the alter G also prepared her for the conditions in LA because it was really hot and humid, so just being inside in, in the room at, at my office where the Altergy was, we would have fans going but still would get 80 degrees in that room um, <laughs> while she's doing a lot of – her, she was running 100 miles a week with the majority of it being on the Altergy. Um, we think it just helped her adapt a little bit better to the the heat and humidity that then she experienced at at trials. And it's interesting too because – I mean, she, she still, at the time, it was a PR4 at trials. It was 235, um, but a lot of people dropped out on that day. And I went back recently to see, okay, how many people were in front of Aaliyah halfway that dropped out? Like, was her performance a, a result of people dropping out um, and her just handling the conditions better? And I think at halfway, there was only three people in front of her that ended up dropping out. So at halfway, she was still in 13th place. Um, that it was more, she had put herself in a good position and then it was just law of attrition. She ended up surviving. Um, but it was also something at one point she said that, uh, I was on the, the loop and she could see me two points during that loop. And at one point she passed me and I yelled out, you're in 16th place. And then she came back around and I yelled out, you're in 13th place. And she's like, how did that happen? I haven't passed anybody. Like, (laughs) it was just the the way that the conditions unfolded. She was just suited, suited to handle it. And we joke with her, like, she's hoping if obviously everything with the, the virus comes down, that she'll be able to, to try to go after a faster marathon time in the, in the fall, because the the three marathons that she or i guess the four marathons that she's done there's been something there like with trials she had uh the injury to to her fibula that um and then the heat of the day uh chicago she did that fall which was a, a pr i think she was 10th that was 234 in 2016 um it was really windy for half the course Uh, the next fall where she was eighth at Chicago marathon, it was, um, she had the chronic sinus infection that went misdiagnosed. We had had her seen a doctor, it went misdiagnosed. And then, um, a month after the, the race, it got diagnosed. Um, and then, uh, this, this past fall when she finished 17th at New York, it was coming off of her knee surgery. So, we're we're excited for her to be healthy and go after a fast time and so she jokes that like it'll be actually her first true marathon build-up because all the other four have had something as like a a impediment that may have prevented her from realizing her full potential at the distance because her 3159 10k would translate or indicate the potential to run a much faster half and full she hasn't been able to to have the build up or or the day where that would indicate it. So hopefully this fall will give her the opportunity to
1: do that. Yeah, nice. And um, it, uh, just recently um another lady from your squad, Jen Bergman. Mm-hmm. Um, she she came. Did she come seventeenth at the trials? And um, yeah. Tell tell us about like how she's progressed and how um and that that'll probably be good. Like we've, uh, earlier. Um, and her working together, maybe, um, you know, in, into the future, like for marathon training.
0: Yeah. And what I was saying earlier about how, like, most of our athletes are like, weren't that accolated in, in college and they developed really well post collegiately. Jen is like the opposite. Jen was like highly accoladed in college. She she had finished third at the NCAA 10K her sophomore year. I think she was top 10 her sophomore year, junior year, senior year. That year, that she was third. She was third behind Alafine Tuliamuk, who just made the Olympic team, and Jordan Hesse. Um, so Jen was always very talented in college, um, but then after college, she, whether it was, um, how do I, she she just didn't she couldn't put it together. The the group she had joined right after she had graduated from University of Arizona was more of a marathon-specific group, and they were they were based on the East Coast. And so here she is at 22, because she was young for, for her grade 2 or 21, moving across the country, training specifically now for the marathon, moved completely away from the track, which was arguably her best event, um, to now focus primarily on the roads and the marathon. It was such a shell shock to her that, she she struggled that first year and a half and just, just hated it. And so ended up moving back to the West Coast to Portland, started training with a group there for about six months before, same thing, just realizing it wasn't the right fit for her. And so kind of self-coached for another six months to a year, um, going into uh, the 2016 trials as well. Um, and then she got a foot injury in preparing for CIM in 2017. So through 2018, her and her boyfriend just backpacked around South America and worked. She worked as a server and he worked in a kitchen at a, at a resort restaurant and um, just kind of bounced around through South America before deciding to uh, come back and give running another shot. And so approached us early in 2019 her p r at the time was two forty two and um i think her half marathon time was seventy six minutes This was all p r s as of early twenty nineteen um but we knew she was talented and so the first the spring was more a matter of just, like and she was she's low mileage like her most mile, mileage going into the trials was eighty miles a week um the most she had done up until the early part of spring was I think she had hit like one or two 75 mile weeks. She'd mostly been like a 60 to 70 mile a week runner. Um, And that's not to say we're not a high mileage program. It's all again, based on the development of the athlete. So Lexi on our team is like 55 to 65, whereas Willie and Alex were a hundred to 110. Um, It really varies based on the athlete, but for Jen, she, she wanted to, prepare for marathon trials and preparing for Chicago last fall um we were able to get her safely up to to 75 miles a week and she dropped her PR at Chicago down from 242 down to 234 um and then in Houston in January she was with that group that that went out there and um her PR coming into spring was 76 at Philly on her buildup into Chicago. She ran 73 minutes. And then at Houston, she ran 71, 35. Um, oh, wow. so she was able to make big jumps this last year as well. Um, and I'm excited to actually try to get her back on the track to see what she can do in a 10 K knowing that that was more of her strength in college. Um, it's easy for athletes to obviously want to stay on roads, especially once they get a taste of the marathon, because you're treated really well and you can make a lot of money, whereas the track you don't make that much. Um, but it's a nice balance in order to, to see some of the speed come through to then utilize that once you get back on the roads. And that's where I think Jen has been so focused on marathons the last three, four years of her running career and really since college that I think getting her back to some of the speed based stuff will also help translate into some of those longer distances but she'll she'll yeah. do a marathon whether it be fall or winter this year but then we will get her back on the track in, in next spring and we're expecting like her PR right now I think is 33 minutes but everything that we've seen from her in workouts would indicate she's ready to run much faster than that yep and
1: and so um we um the hills um sort of um uh, approach where you sort of got a lot of high intensity sessions in a short amount of time. Um, are you able to like give a, a rough example of like, you know, a typical week or, or, or of, um, or even your, your, um, your interpretation of what you've been doing, um, Richard, like lately um, with some of the half marathon guys. Um, uh, yeah. I know that's hard to do yeah. because everyone's different. Yeah.
0: So it- Obviously, it's going to depend based on the event that the athlete's training for. So if if someone's training mostly for 5K or 10K, we might have four to five quality sessions within a week, um, which that where it becomes very critical to, to monitor it really closely because it's easy to overtrain an athlete. If an athlete... One, one of the biggest, going back to what you asked me about, one of the biggest things that, like, I've learned from Coach Hill is, like, yep, two things from a psychological thing he always says is approach everything with confidence and always have a positive mindset. So those are two that we try to instill with, with all of our athletes. But I get, I get really irritated when an athlete tries to beat the workouts that I have on paper because especially in the system where you have maybe four or five workouts – It'll catch up to you eventually if you're trying to exceed what what is written on paper. So if I have, say, for for one of our females, if if I'm writing five by a mile at five ten pace, and they're running five oh five, like, okay, one two repeats, you can see that mistake being made. But the entirety of the workout, eventually, one of the stimuluses later in that week, might might end up suffering or two weeks down the road, maybe they start having a little bit of hamstring soreness or they start getting sick. Like that volume of workouts in a short period um, opens you up to more risk. And so you do have to monitor it really closely. But a a week like that would involve an interval session. Like I just said, Um, we would have a speed-based session within that. Um, the athlete might have an effort-based workout, like a fart, leg at some point, which is considered in V hill system, not a focal workout, but more of like a bridge workout, um, to get your legs moving to prepare for the next session. That's more of the coordinative efforts that I was talking about earlier. Um, and then they would have, uh, aerobic or anaerobic threshold, depending on, um, if they're going up to the half marathon distance or focusing more on 5k. Um, and then they'd have, uh, A long run that, for us, a lot of the long runs do tend to be a little bit more up-tempo. They are usually at pace. It's very rarely that they're at effort. And I like it to be more consistent pace as opposed to progressionary efforts, where if for the guys I'm riding 5.56 flat pace for a long run, I don't necessarily want them to, to have the overall average at 5.56 flat and start at 6.30 and progress down to 5.30. I'd rather them just lock into five fifty six flat because to me the effort is easier to do the whole thing at five fifty to six flat where they can find a rhythm, as opposed to that progressionary effort where they might actually be working pretty hard by the back end in order to hit the same average. So that the the four to five workouts, um, like when Aliyah ran her thirty one fifty nine, she was hitting on average about four workouts a week. Whereas for our marathoners over this past year, that's where I've modified V-Hill stuff a little bit because we are seeing where, yes, they could handle the workload, but then the results just weren't translating in the marathon. And to me, it was more a matter of, okay, when you're working that many systems in a short period of time, you're teaching teaching the body to uh, tap into its glycogen stores really efficiently, but you're not teaching it to store those glycogen stored well. And so that's where I had to start spacing out, spacing out those, those stimuluses a little bit more to where maybe it, like for some athletes, it was more of a 10 day cycle. Others, it might've been a 14 day cycle. Whereas in our 5k, 10k athlete, it might be more of a seven day cycle. Um, so they still yeah. might get those four or five stimuluses, but it might end up looking like one one week you might have two of those with the bulk of those being pretty hefty workouts. And then the next one might be a little bit more moderate workouts, but you have three, three workouts built in there um, while maintaining high volume the whole time. Um, yep. and that's one of the things that when we talked about Aliyah's buildup into the 2016 trials. One of the things that I think aided her was up until that point, she had two and a half years of mostly 90 to 95 miles a a week with only her down weeks being race weeks. And so even though she had that abbreviated 10 weeks going into trials, it was the consistency at the mileage that she had shown, which is also another one of our things is – I might not fluctuate mileage very much, but I might get them up to a mileage I feel comfortable keeping them at for a long time, periodically having like one or two down weeks or one or two spike weeks, but for the most part, keeping it at that volume and then fluctuating the volumes and the intensities of the individual workouts in there.
1: Yep. And do you reckon fluctuating, um, so like, yeah, there's four or five workouts a week in, in that example week that you gave, Um, for the 5k 10k training but because each session has their purpose and they're focusing on something slightly different do you feel that um is that why like a lot of athletes are able to to do to cope with that training and have, have you found that some runners just haven't been able to cope with that training like when you've got a new member to the squad and they haven't done that type of training before
0: yeah i think the adjustment period is always challenging at first like yep especially with the post-collegiate because most of the post-collegiates are used to crushing their workouts it's confidence yeah. builders like th- their coach writes 530 they run 520 and they are pumped um, <laughs> but like for us like again with that and i won't start everyone out at that four to five like you try progress them up and see what they can start to tolerate and so yep. like lexi who's the lower mileage she won't have the four workouts in the week because she just has one her her volume is so low that like the bulk of her intensity during the week would then be workouts, uh, or the bulk of her volume would then be in workouts that that just wouldn't be smart for me to put her at 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 that high all the time. Um, but it, it is a transition point in general, um, partially because it takes a while for them to learn pacing like they're they're post-collegiate but like pacing is pacing is very difficult for a lot of them especially those like Lexi was a 13-time All-American and three-time national champ for a division two school but like she never had anyone to really work out with in college because no one on her college team she was the fastest female um, and then when it came to races she would just go out with the lead pack so it wasn't like she really got a sense of gauge of effort because her effort was always just go out with the leaders and hang on as long as you can um so that was a little bit of a learning curve for her and some of the athletes that we've had in the past some athletes i i think that that have a tough time with our system it's not necessarily the system by itself it's the athlete either questioning whether there's too much intensity built in there and like i am i am a I am as anal as they come as a coach. Like I wheel yeah. out everything. I, I monitor heart rate variability. We get uh, blood work done on the athletes to check iron levels, make sure their are and kinase levels aren't through the roof if they start feeling terrible during workouts. And to be upfront about anything that our athletes take, the only thing our athletes take is iron. Um, but those, those blood markers to me are indicative of, okay, are they overworking or is their system having a tough, tough time recovering? Do they need more of a recovery period? Should we base it more off of just effort for a, a time period to let their system catch back up? Um, the heart rate variability is giving me measures of their recovery scores and just how, how they're coming off of workouts. And those are, those are things that like you start seeing with some athletes that, may not be as meticulous about recording it as they should or athletes that are coming from different collegiate environments where they're not used to working as aggressively as they are now, or they, um, again are used to beating the workouts that they have on paper. So in their head, if they're running two seconds slower than the time that I put on paper, they see it as a failed workout, which to me, that's a successful one. Um, so that I think is more the adjustment period and it tells a lot about the maturity of the athlete of who's able to tolerate it because you really do have to structure yourself in and out of the sport maturely to make sure that you're giving yourself ample time to recover, that you're, you're getting in enough caloric intake to make sure your body's recovering well, that you're keeping home life stress minimized and you're getting in good quality sleep. Because the athlete that doesn't structure themselves well enough will struggle, um, or realize that this type of structure um, just isn't just isn't necessarily what they were hoping post collegiate running would be, and like a lot of our athletes are unsponsored. They're all running great, but they're all unsponsored, and like I I tell them like we're not we're not doing anything different than some of the top groups in the country and and internationally are doing. Um, The difference is, is those athletes are getting paid well enough to do it. And so it's easier to justify structuring your lifestyle accordingly to make the training conducive. It's harder to tell somebody that has to work a full-time job and isn't sponsored to pursue the sport. You can't go out with friends on a Saturday night because you have a hard long run on a Sunday the good ones will do that because they know the importance for them of what it means. Um, but for some that are trying to figure out life straight out of college that they love running and they're, they showed success at it in college and they think, I'm going to do it as a professional, don't necessarily have the professional mindset in order to do it long-term. And that's the, that's the unfortunate thing is we've had some athletes in the past that had just as much talent as any of the athletes that we currently have and had just as much of ability to compete successfully as a, as a post-collegiate, but just didn't have the ability to structure themselves accordingly or um, the uh, confidence in the type of training that they were doing um, to trust that, yes, you have a lot of workouts in a short period of time, but trust that I'm doing my job of monitoring it really closely to make sure that I'm not putting you in a hole.
1: Yep. Um, and you guys couldn't be far off getting a group sponsorship or, um, no, I suppose it's a pretty, um, tough, tough sport to get this sponsorship, but like, well, it, it,
0: yeah, yeah. So it, yes, yes. And no, it kind of depends on how you define sponsorship, because to me, sponsorship means like whatever sponsor you're bringing in is obviously outfitting the club with gear, but then they're also paying the club in order to help the athletes support the lifestyle. So travel to competitions, maybe helping with, um, food purchases or or rent or stuff like that. So we had a sponsor with three, six, one in the past and we, uh, our contract with them ended at the end of 2017. They wanted to renew us for the, the same amount that, that we had signed on with previously And we chose not to renew with them because this was also at the the time period where the shoes were starting to become much more prevalent and much more of a factor when it came to competitions. And so we were concerned about either not having a comparable footwear, not saying we needed to be in those shoes, but just having confidence that the company we were with was developing stuff to compete with it. But then if if they didn't have that intent to compete – we wanted to make sure that the athletes were being compensated enough to represent that brand. Um, and and what that value is to each athlete is completely different because Willie on our team put it best is that at the end of his career, he won't remember how much money he made in the sport, but he'll remember how fast he ran. Yep. And so that has stuck with me in the sense of, yes, we would like to have our group as a sponsor, but we're also not in a position to be brand ambassadors. We're not going to have our athletes wear a footwear and say that they're sponsored by this group or sponsored by this brand. If the brand isn't willing to financially support the athlete to a certain extent outside of just giving them product. And so a lot of brands now, because of the way that social media has influenced the way athletes have to market and advertise and, even though we're not sponsored by a company, we have to do the same thing just to help improve the brand identity of each individual. It it really has changed the way that sponsors appro- approach athletes, and the idea that you as a sixty one forty five like Noah got sponsored with a really good contract by Socony running sixty one forty eight. Three of our guys yep. did that same thing in January. Not a single one of them has sponsorship. So it's like. In the last two years, the market, the landscape of how the sport and sponsorship models are has changed. It does make me a, a little bit fearful for the athlete that's in college right now that's trying, that thinks I'm good, I should get sponsored coming out of college. Those sponsorships, especially from an individual standpoint, are harder to come by than they used to be. Um, and especially from, from a group standpoint, most groups, we, we were fortunate that we had the the sponsorship that we were able to get so quickly with less talent pool from our athletes than we currently have now um, with 361 two years ago. Because yep. for us as a startup to get a sponsorship like that is rare because most of the shoe companies – when they sponsor a group, it's not them finding a group and saying, we're going to sponsor you. It's them deciding we're going to start a group. We're going to hire the coach and we're selecting the athletes. So that's, that's the difference is like, we've all, we have a board that helps, helps me run the group. And the discussions that we've had is, How do we make ourselves a a viable group without relying on brand sponsorships? Because those are hard to come by. And then that becomes your entire source of revenue that makes it where if you lose that sponsorship, how do you survive? And so ultimately, at the end of the day, when I'm talking to new potential athletes, it's, look, ultimately, my job as the coach is to help you run fast. Now, if you run fast enough then you get an agent and that agent's job is to help you get a contract and to help you make money. And that's not going to stop us from still trying to find group sponsorships for the athletes that are unsponsored, but we're also not about to just sign on to a contract. That's just going to give them product. And then they have to do their job of marketing that product when they're not getting compensated behind the scenes. So,
1: yep. It's a, it's a different
0: market for sure.
1: Yeah. Um, uh we we with, with the Boulder running community like it's renowned as like such a, an amazing place for running and um hiking and um outdoor um activities um with the running community you've got like some really good running groups um you've got like i know lee lee troop has yep. has yeah, yeah. had a running group in the past um you got the the tin man um yep. squad um uh brad hudson used to have a squad like um does everyone run with everyone or is the groups sort of quite separate separate um yeah what's the running community like in boulder
0: i would say for workouts for the most part the groups kind of keep to themselves but yep. most of the athletes on our team are friends with most of the athletes on all the other teams so on non-workout yep. days usually they're all meeting up with who they consider their buddies to go for runs and that might that might include like most of the athletes on our team running with other athletes. It might be like, like Noah's friends with most of the Tinman guys. So like on recovery days, he might go run with a few of the Tinman guys. Um, Willie is same thing. Willie's friends with a lot of the Tinman guys. Um, Maggie on our team is friends with some, some of the women on Bosherd as is, as is my wife, Aaliyah. So they might do some recovery runs together. Um, For workouts specifically, though, like we have our practice, they have their practice. We might see them at same locations. Uh, Now, outside of that, Boulder isn't huge. Like Boulder's five miles circumference or or like five-mile diameter across. And then you have, I think it's like a 30-mile radius around the whole – a 30-mile circumference around the whole thing um, that it's not a big – big town and Boulder, the city itself owns all the open space that surrounds the city. So there's, there's a lot of open space that kind of insulates the community. Um, so most of the athletes that live in and around Boulder, everyone knows each other because it's not a huge community to begin with. And there's a lot of social events and running events that take place here where like Pearl street miles, a pretty big event during summer, and same with Boulder Boulder, that a lot of the athletes, even if they're not competing, are going out to watch and hanging out together and grabbing beers together, that it, uh, everyone, everyone, everyone knows each other pretty well. Um, from a coaching standpoint, like I'm friends with most of the coaches. I'll grab beers with a lot of the coaches. Um, there are certain coaches that you have closer relationships with that you might talk training with we're fortunate that a lot of like legendary athletes from running history still live in the area that are used as resources, like Mark Plotchis, Benji Durden, um, and um, uh, Lorraine Moller, like some pretty historic figures in, in marathoning in particular, but running in general, um, that you can tap into as resources. And so it does make it fun when you go to some of the summer track meets or, or like Pearl Street Mile and you, you not only see a lot of the current athletes that are there, you see a lot of the former athletes that, that have settled in the area that used to train here. Um, and then same thing with a lot of the coaches, especially with somebody like, like Lee having a group here and, and being a former um, Olympian himself. Um, it, it makes it a pretty special community to be a part of. In that sense, it could also be a pretty competitive community because you do have so many groups and and athletes that are all vying for similar goals. Um, that sometimes that can also get a little bit taxing, especially if you show up at a track to do a workout and you you have the idea that you you're you're focused on what you're doing, and then there's three other groups out there and you wonder do they see me struggling on this day when I'm huffing through one K repeats on the track? Um, so that's, that's something that comes with the territory as well. Um, my wife's from Santa Rosa, California, and she jokes that like, like Santa Rosa is a pretty active community. You finish a run in Santa Rosa and you might have a cyclist come by that goes like, man, you were moving fast today. Whereas in Boulder (laughs) you finish a run and you see an older runner at the trailhead they already know who you are. They already know what your accolades are, and they'll ask you what was your workout, how much rest did you have, what pace were you running. Like, <laughs> it's just a different level of community in that sense because the recreational runners yeah. aren't just recreational runners; they're educated runners with the sport. Um, Noah, Noah, like the Boulder is a giant Noah fan club. We could be on a warm-up run, and you'll have people yelling out, "Good luck at Chicago next week, Noah!" Like everyone everyone knows um which like i said could be a blessing and a curse at times it's a blessing when you're running well it's a curse when you're not so
1: yeah (laughs) well i I wanted to touch on one more thing because i'm I'm so appreciative of the amount of time you spent with with me richie um but i really wanted to touch on um uh a, a little bit to do with your background as a chiropractor and um and, and really specialising in treating runners. And um, with your group, like, I think you're in a great situation um, uh, to uphold the sort of um, that V-heel sort of type of training philosophy where you're having to monitor everyone's load so well and, um, and if they're doing, you know, you know high-intensity sessions quite frequently, like, you, you know, what better person to sort of, like, um, to, to uphold that kind of training? Like, what are you doing... Um, like you mentioned sort of, um, calorie intake, um, sleep, like being really conscious of, yeah, yeah. Eating well and mm-hmm. sleeping, um, taking naps. Um, but like, are you doing some strength and conditioning with some of your squad? Um, and what other things are you sort of doing with your squad to try to prevent injuries and to keep them on the yeah, path? Yeah. So,
0: um, Yeah, one of my backgrounds is in strength and conditioning as well. Um, I have a CSCS, which is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. And then I'm also certified through USA Weightlifting as an Olympic lifting coach. Um, So all the strength routines that the athletes perform are all routines that I wrote. Um, A lot of it is it's not necessarily strength in the sense of like trying to make the athlete stronger, but it's like it's again building Athleticism, but also to try to help them recover faster so they can maintain the, the volumes and intensities that they're doing. So they'll do something every day. Like I mentioned before, the biomotor pattern will be tied to whatever they're doing running wise. So on a recovery day, it might be more mobility and core stability focused. Whereas on a marathon pace workout or tempo day, they might be doing med ball throws or Olympic lifting Um, speed days they might be doing plyos Um, so they're incorporating the different biomotor demands um, with an aspect of general strength plyos core stability postural endurance mobility balance proprioceptive stuff every every, throughout each week Um, aside from that from a recovery standpoint um, I'm a big proponent of pool walking I want them in the pool pretty regularly particularly after after hard workouts because the pool is one of the more efficient recovery modalities that you can utilize the, between the pressure gradient that gets created from the depth that you're at below the surface to the, uh, the movement of, of, uh, with that, with that pressure gradient, the movement of your tissue helps to uh, move fluid in and out of the, the tissue space. And then, uh, just there's studies where, just having the water on the surface can calm down the nervous system to, to speed the recovery in between. Um, so that's something I advocate pretty regularly from a nutritional standpoint. I, I, I'm proud to say that we have a really healthy culture on the team. Um, I'm somebody that like, like, especially when I was coaching at adolescence, like I would lecture on relative energy deficiency in sport. And it's something that we try to guard against with feeding into that type of, attitude and mindset on our team. Um, I don't give the athletes, here's a nutritional plan that you need to follow. Um, I, I tell them like, I want them eating a lot because their tissue needs a lot in order to, to recover. Um, and if 80% of the time they're eating relatively healthy, then they shouldn't stress about the 20% of time that they're indulging. If they want more specifics than that. There's a couple of nutritionists that I, I have a lot of trust in to help give advice on timing of nutrients to make sure they're absorbing stuff really well to different, um, meal ideas to make sure they're balancing out whatever macronutrients they're taking in, um, to just overall assessing what they are taking in to make sure that they're not neglecting anything. Um, but that's something that like we do advocate good healthy healthy eating habits not necessarily having to be super stringent on monitoring it but just making sure that they're doing their their job of cooking mostly at home and eating relatively healthy um and then uh from a treatment standpoint like I treat all the athletes uh once to twice a week like I do active release and graston technique in the office um I have all the strength and conditioning equipment that we utilize in my office as well. Um, we'll do joint mobilizations and, and adjustments, um, manual traction. Um, we'll use a lot of the, like, um, uh, joint joint mobilizations using the bands, um, things that things that aren't necessary like, I don't I hate the word injury prevention because if the the stimulus that we're applying is is exceeding what they can tolerate they're going to break down regardless of whatever injury prevention stuff I'm implementing but um yep. we're doing our 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 best to try to minimize risk and trying to optimize recovery outside of just normal training um and then a couple yep. of our athletes will see a massage therapist once a week um just cuz they like the way that it feels um, I'm, I'm somebody that even though I do soft tissue therapy and I have patients that see massage and our athletes that see massage to me, I hate the idea that the massage is the placebo or is the, um, the thing that's going to keep you healthy because ultimately like it's, it's going to calm down the nervous system, which helps to to aid recovery But ultimately the strength work to me is what's helping to optimize the recovery more because we're then imparting a loading pattern on the tissue to help stimulate remodeling to occur. So I think having the balance between stuff that psychologically helps the athlete calm down, which massage, meditation, pool, walking, naps can all help with, um, in in conjunction with a lot of the active recovery, um, the the strength and conditioning part of it um, has has provided a good balance to help keep most of our athletes healthy and and by no means are we perfect like we still have injuries and we but ultimately I feel like we do a really good job of catching injuries early when they occur I I feel like diagnostics are one of my strengths and so doing a really good job of not misdiagnosing an injury. Um, and minimizing the time lost due to those injuries is also something that, that I feel like has been a strength of our program, that even though little things come up here and there, um, our athletes aren't, are able to still get in consistent training without missing too much time in between.
1: Nice. Yeah. I've, I've, um, heard you talk about, um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, And like, I think that's a really good um, uh, concept for runners to understand Um, just that fact that, you know, your bones remodel Mm -hmm. under stress and um, they adapt and change um, as you stress them. And um, cause a lot of time uh, I suppose um, it's easy to get into the thought process. Oh, you've got an injury, you need a rest. Um, Yeah. Especially when it comes to tendons and um, uh, trying to, you know, train them and condition them to become more robust. Yeah. That's,
0: Um, yeah, that's, um, uh, I mean, I mean, you brought up a good point with tendons like the Wolf's law and it's an easy way to describe it for bone, but also even for tendon, like telling athletes, like you have a high hamstring tendinopathy, like complete rest is not fixing that tendon. We need to improve the resilience and the elasticity of that tendon to be able to survive the demand of what you're going to be doing once you're back to normal sport. So it's, yes, we might, we might deload the tissue a little bit, but it's ultimately we want to make sure that whatever strategies we're implementing are going to help the long-term progression of that structure. And if complete rest with a bone injury, because it's a more significant bone injury is, is something that they need, we'll, we'll obviously do that. But I'm much more of a proponent of active recovery, active rehab um, and, and trying to make sure that we're not neglecting that as part of our normal training cycle.
1: Nice. And I really liked um, uh, just that point you made before when, you know, some of your athletes are doing a speed session, you you incorporate Mm -hmm. sort of work um, on that day. And then when they're doing a long run, you might do some strength training when they're, um, uh, having an easy recovery day, you're doing focusing more on core mobility, sort of Pilates kind of work. Um, h- how do you structure that into training? Is it part of the warm up or the warm down, um, or um, is it done so later it's that both. day?
0: Ideally, or- so yeah. there's yeah. times where an athlete might do their strength later in the day if they had to run off to work, like if work is calling them in earlier than normal, um, or if they're planning on doing a double later and they want to do their strength after the double but ideally i have them like they they always do there's a dynamic warm up that they do before they start their warm up run if it's a continuous run they'll still do that dynamic warm up um and after their warm up run they if they're doing more of a specific speed or tempos or intervals um they'll do like some plyometric style drills to to warm up the nervous system or, or engage the tissue a little bit more um and then after yep. they're done with their cool down, we'll immediately go into strength work. Um, depending on, again, on the focus will depend on the, the biomotor stimulus we're focusing on. But I'd rather than perform it then in a fatigued state, um, because then we're obviously we're forcing the system to move with good mechanics when it's tired. Um, and the nervous system's already warmed up at that point, even though it's tired, which again comes into play with Monitor like i when i when i come to a workout session i'll say it's a plyo day i'll have my plyos outlined for what i want them to do on that day but in those plyos i'm monitoring them for form and i might also cut the plyos early if it looks like they're just fatigued well we may also add more yep. on if it looks like they're handling it all well so I'd rather them do it in a fatigue state just so we're inducing that fatigue in the workout. I'm not, I, I don't like it where, okay, we have say, say in our normal cycle, say they had an interval session on a Tuesday and then Wednesday was supposed to be a recovery day. And that's the day they're doing their Olympic lifting. It's like, they're already tired from the day before. I would rather them have more recovery time before that next workout and get the Olympic lifting in on the same day as the workout. So we're not jeopardizing that recovery period, um, by adding on now a strength session on a recovery day. So I try to keep the, the biomotor patterns pretty paired. Um, they'll still obviously do a strength component on those recovery days. It's just, it's a little bit more conducive to what the recovery day
1: entails. Yep. Yep. And, um, and, and and adding like these plyo exercises and a strength and conditioning exercises, like that's all based in trying to make the runner a yep. better athlete, isn't it? Like, yeah, um, it's it's all yeah,
0: fatigue so... resistance. Um, like trying to help them yep. handle the demands when fatigue occurs, so they can maintain efficient mechanics deeper into that period before fatigue onset occurs. So, that obviously becomes much more crucial in the marathon. Um, when fatigue starts impeding, like you start moving from your primary uh, mechanics to your secondary, which which obviously is less efficient, and um, speed ends up being the, the, the trade-off for that. Um, so the, the longer they can maintain yep. their efficiency, the, the longer they'll be able to maintain the speed that they're trying to run.
1: Yeah, I've definitely found that with um yeah a few of the runners i treat or even myself like at about the 30k mark in a marathon you sort of that's where you yeah, work out where yeah. your weaknesses are um yeah you start getting sore in certain spots or you start um yeah finding one part of your For legs sure. not working yeah. properly um yeah um yeah and then uh, like um there was one yeah i also heard you mention that um yeah strength training you, start, you sort of um helping um stimulate Mm -hmm. the adrenal system um and um yeah i thought that would probably be interesting um just yeah that's that's one of the reasons
0: why we don't want to neglect the the resistance training and the plyos in particular because that does obviously help to support the adrenal system and as an endurance athlete you're frying your adrenal system with training so things to help promote it naturally to speed recovery aid tissue recovery but also to make sure you're not running the risk of developing chronic fatigue or overtraining is also important. And so that's where a lot of the, the ancillary work obviously helps fight fatigue, but helping to promote this, the stuff that we're not working when you're doing your normal bulk of running is, is obviously key. Um, it's funny because, A lot of the runners, the older runners in particular that come into the clinic for for injury management, um, most of them don't do much strength work or the strength work. They feel like they're doing strength work, but it's all body weight based and it's planks and it's balance work or yoga and they consider that strength work. And it's no wonder why most of them have glute tendinopathies and high hamstring tendinopathies and patellar tendinosis because they're – they're operating within 60 to 70% of their normal gait cycle when they're doing their run training. Cause they're not sprinting and they're not doing, um, hard Hills anymore. And they're not doing a lot of like 400 meter track workouts or 200 meter speed development type stuff that they may have done when they were in high school, but they've now become so used to going out for tempos and mile repeats and long runs that, that they neglect the other components that helped to balance out their, their program and same thing with the strength. And I, I joke because it's like, I I see it with our athletes when they're doing strength work in the gym, they try to rush through it. Whereas the repeats that they're doing, it's all about rhythm and timing. And whereas if you had a, if you had a strength athlete, they're much more meticulous about their strength, but then when they're going out and running, they're sprinting. So it's like, it's, it's almost like flip yeah. and it's like, it's, it's one of those things where, um, I think the athlete, like we tend, as we get older, we tend to deviate more towards endurance stuff, right? Because we can still improve it and yep. you can improve your hundred meters speed unless you're Justin Gatlin, much faster after, after 30 years of age. And so it's like, most of them don't like, like, especially the older runner, they don't like doing things that they're not good at and they can still see improvement in their marathon pace workouts that they want to do most of that. Noah's no different. Noah hates the speed stuff. Um, He loves going for like the eight mile tempos or the two mile repeats. Like the things that he can see are going to help him run a fast marathon it's harder for him to get excited about doing 200 meters at a pretty fast clip um, when he's getting ready for something like Chicago. Um, But it's also, those are the things that ultimately would help keep the athlete healthier longer. Um, And that I I do like a was hoping to have a track. She for, she uh, decided to forego the Olympic trials in February, hoping to have a track season to get ready for the Olympic track trials. Because we used to do that a lot with her in the past, alternating between a marathon and a track cycle, the speed and 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 the the more aerobic based stuff. Um, because having that balance, she felt like also helped keep her healthier a little bit more.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And is that why, like, you sometimes have the strength training after a say a longer yeah. run or a slower run because of the strain that has on your yeah and and, and and I just
0: think it like. Um, So say like after a long run where they might be doing like, um, medicine ball throws or walking lunges or, or some more stability stuff. Um, those are days where it's like, you're challenging your nervous system when it's already a little bit fatigued. You're trying to make it move efficiently while you're under, under that type of load. But you just finished, say it was like a hard 18, 20 mile run your nervous system is going to be pretty excited at that point, even though you're fatigued, it's still excited based on what you just did. Um, So that also helps to calm it down a little bit more. Like I always equate running as a bell curve where the top of that bell curve is your running workout. And regardless of whatever stimulus you're doing, it's still a bell curve. So everything you do before and after is winding up and winding down the nervous system the higher up that spike, so if you're doing a speed session, it's a really high peak, versus if you're doing a recovery run, it's a really low peak, um, depends on how much stuff you should be doing before and after. But for everything, it's a wind-up and it's a wind-down, and that helps to to optimize the recovery or get the recovery process started um, to make sure that you're ready to go for the next day or the next session. Yeah, nice. Well, wow.
1: um no I'm so wrapped with all the um uh, stuff we've covered today, uh, Richie. Um yeah, I, I I just wanna thank you um uh for the time and the chat and, and what valuable information and um Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Happy to
0: to come on and any time you need more like stream of consciousness, just let me know.
1: Yeah, no, that that'll be unreal. Um yeah. Thanks so much um, for the, being on the podcast. Yeah, today thanks, and, man. Um, yeah, I'll see you later.